<clears throat> now behold, there came a man of God from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense. And he cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. And on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Then he gave a sign that same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be split apart, and the ashes which are on it shall be poured out. Now it came about when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar in Bethel, that Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. But his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was split apart, and the ashes were poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and it became as it was before. Then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall eat no bread, nor drink water, nor return by the way which you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way which he came to Bethel. I'll pray. Father, we again just recognize that we need you to teach us, and we thank you, Lord, that, that the Spirit of God is the one who leads us into all truth, and he will never mislead us. And so, God, our, our eyes are to you, Lord, that you would instruct us and work in us, God, as only you can, that you would speak to our spirits, that we would not merely hear with our ears, but that we would know, God, that we've heard from you. This is what we desire. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, my intent this morning is to look at the whole of this chapter, 1 Kings chapter 13. And obviously this is God's statement on what he thinks of what Jeroboam is doing in setting up these golden calves and encouraging the people to worship at these places. You know, every year um, at his hill, the first day of orientation or so, we give the students a Bible knowledge test, and that kind of scares um, them a little bit, um, and they, we want them to just see what they don't know, um, and so that keeps them a little humble as Bible school starts. And, but the other thing we do is we give them just a, I think it's 20 questions that I call a personal belief assessment. And, and that's not graded or anything. We just kind of like to get an idea of where people are coming from on various questions. Well, one question that is on that that is probably not stated the best, but it's a question that gets to the issue of, are all cultures of equal value? Are all cultures, um, should all cultures be respected as we hear today? Are all cultures of equal value? And I'm, I'm not really surprised, but about half the students or more every year will say, yes, all cultures should be respected. All cultures are of equal value. 
Well, we know what it, we mean that we should give respect to all people regardless of where they're coming from. We should treat them with dignity and respect made in the image of God. Um, we should give respect if we want to receive respect, do unto others as you would um, want done to you. But it is not true that every culture is of equal value. There are hideous things that are intrinsic to various cultures. Some cultures um, would drown twins because they believe that they are from the devil. Some cultures believe that you should kill your enemies and eat them. And cannibalism has been a big part of the world's history. We know that when Cortez came into Mexico and he saw what was going on by the Aztec Indians, he was, he was just said, I am in the face of evil itself. And we could look and see that, that in every culture, the United States is not exempt. There are things that are just truly, truly ungodly. And God hates those things. And God is not neutral about those things. He does not have a neutral place where he says, they're doing okay, we can just kind of let it slide. God has very strong opinions on what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. And this is no exception when it comes to this false religious system that Jeroboam has now instituted. So God sends a man from Judah, that's the southern kingdom, to the northern kingdom of Israel, to the city of Bethel, where one of the two places Jeroboam had set up a golden calf and they had a massive altar there. And by the way, this altar would not have been like some altars in the Bible that are just a small stack of stones. But this altar would have been as big as this room or larger. Some of these altars have been found. They've been excavated. They look like hills until they got to looking at them and they realized that's not a hill, that's an altar. And so they were massive, big enough that hundreds and thousands of people could be there at the same time, elevated high enough that a multitude of people could see what was going on on top, sacrificing at times hundreds of animals at one time. So we know we've excavated these things and there are gutters, channels cut across the top of the altars to drain the blood off because there was so much um, sacrifice that was, being, that was taking place on top. And this was an altar like that. It was a massive structure. And God sends this anonymous man, unnamed, simply called a man of God, to cry out against the altar. So first I just want to think... Talk about this verse 2. He cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord. He doesn't cry out against Jeroboam, though we know that Jeroboam is included in the denunciation. He's crying out against the system. He's crying out against the thing that Israel is doing that it is trusting in instead of God. I wonder what God would cry out against today. And we could name a lot of things. He would cry out against abortion. He would cry out against the way that children are being groomed and taken advantage of, even in our public schools. Many things that God would cry out against. But do we realize that what God cries out against most is self-righteousness, pride, sin in general. God hates anything that we would construct 
to take the place of him and his word. If there's anything that I am trusting in other than Jesus Christ, God cries out against it. It might be that I'm trusting in that God is going to accept me when I die. He will allow me into heaven because I have been better than I have been worse. My good outweighs my bad. And I am trusting in my good works. It might be that I'm trusting in my sincerity. After all, all my life I have sincerely tried to please God. It might be that I have trusted in my commitment. How could a person be more committed to doing what is right than what I have been? And God would cry out against these things. He cries out against sincerity, commitment, passion, good works. He cries out against it because these are false constructs. They are things that are taking the place of a simple faith in Jesus Christ. And he hates them. There's no other way to, to describe it. He is not neutral on these things. He is not saying these things are of equal value. What really, and I mentioned this last week, what really just kind of renewed my, 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 my vision on this was when we, Patsy and I took that cruise and, and person after person was telling us when we'd get to, you know, we'd get the conversation about what I do for a living. And, oh, man, I'm going to talk about religious stuff. And then different people at the table are going, more than one night. Well, we're all worshiping the same God. We're all heading in the same place. And I'm thinking, people, each of us has one foot on the grave. And some of you have got both feet on the grave. I mean, goodness. And I'm thinking, and you're thinking... That you can stand before the holy God and say that what you came up with is better than what God says? That's scary business. And I did not get prophet-like and cry out at the dinner table against their false constructs. Maybe I should have. But I am, I tell you, I've been, I know Pat's and I both, we just, our hearts have just been so much in prayer for those dear people that we met that are hoping in something other than Jesus Christ. And God cries out against those hopes. However noble, however sincere it is, it is wrong. And it is an affront to what God has said and to his own person. So God sends a man of God. As the story goes on, we're going to find out there is a prophet living in Bethel. God does not send him. Wonder why. I think the story speaks for itself why God doesn't use him. But he uses this unnamed man. And as you go through and read the story in this one chapter, 14 times he is called a man of God. Clearly that's being emphasized. Only once is he called a prophet. 14 times a man of God. And then after he dies in 2 Kings chapter 23... He is again called a man of God. Wow, I don't think there's anybody else that 15 times they're called a man of God. Ever been called a man of God? Woman of God? I have twice. I didn't know what to say. Once, Mexican restaurant in comfort where I eat all the time. 
And the manager one time, I, I, he, he's, he referred to me as a man of God. I'm going, why would he say that? I got on an airplane one time, and, I, and there was a fellow there that I know that I hadn't seen for a long time. And he was traveling with some friends, and they were coming back from a mission trip to Africa. And I was glad to see him. And I, hey, how you doing? And he said, oh, good to see you. And he said to his friends, let me introduce a man of God to you. And he said it just as loud as I'm talking now. The whole airplane could hear him. And I'm going, wow. You know, there was a time when any and every preacher was called a man of God. That's gone. <laughs> that doesn't happen anymore. What makes a man a man of God? Well, in the Old Testament, it was somebody who proclaimed God's words. So you'll find there are several instances in the Old Testament where prophets are called men of God. Because they weren't proclaiming their words, they were proclaiming God's word. And you could just be sure that when that guy speaks, he's not going to be speaking from himself. He's going to be speaking what God wants him to say. That's a man of God. Well, what about the New Testament? Paul brings up that term again. You got to love it. He says, first, he makes it very um, generic of all Christians, I believe what he's saying, when he says in 2 Timothy 3, he says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And then he continues, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And then he says to Timothy himself at the end of 1 Timothy, he says, flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. One thing a man of God is not is perfect. He is not perfect. He is not without sin. Of the 15 times that this man of God in 1 Kings is called a man of God, half of them are after he sins and disobeys. So he's not perfect, but he is a man that belongs to God and is willing to speak as from God. I believe that describes every Christian. In the New Testament, it's not the man of God that is the most frequent term that's used of us, but rather it is saint. And it's just as powerful. And saint doesn't mean somebody that is without sin but it means somebody that belongs to God through simple faith in Jesus Christ. We may be uncomfortable, and, and in a measure we should be uncomfortable with people calling us men and women of God because we know we don't measure up to that. But in terms of how God sees us, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, God sees you as being just as righteous as Jesus is. That's pretty righteous. You have been made righteous, declared righteous. Not in our behavior, but positionally before God, He sees us as being the very righteousness of God. We ought to remember that when we're mad at each other. And we're so tempted to hurl all kinds of things that later we wish we hadn't said. Wouldn't it be better to start out with, Oh, wife, woman of God. 
Oh, husband, man of God. Wouldn't it lower the temperature a lot if we would just remember how God sees us? Saint, man of God, woman of God, children of God. That's how God sees us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we all love this passage. Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? That's not the part we love, but where he's going with this. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers huh, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And the people reading this would have gone, check, check, that's me, check, that's you, check. And everybody in the church would have been covered. Because... The church was made up of people who had formerly been fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards. That's the saints before they were saints. And it's not that their behavior has completely changed because we still sin. But rather their ownership, their identity has changed. So that Paul continues and says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, past tense. You were sanctified, past tense. You were justified, past tense, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of, God, of our God. Paul could have just as well said, You have been made men and women of God. Sanctified, justified, in the name of Jesus, by the Spirit of God. So a man of God, a woman of God, is simply a person that belongs to God. And you belong to God because you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life. And you're not trusting in your own constructs. Even though everybody around you may be doing that, you've placed your trust squarely and solely in Jesus Christ. So this man cries out, says in verse 2, and he says, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Now just to be clear, no king ever made human sacrifices on this altar. What Josiah will do, 2 Kings chapter 23, is take the bones of these false priests and burn them on this altar. And so he didn't actually take human beings and kill them and burn them on the altar. He burned their bones on the altar. This is a, an incredible prophecy. It will not be fulfilled for 300 years. And when Jeroboam heard the words, a son shall be born in the house of David, shall be born, then Jeroboam can, knows that he can, at least he thinks he can, he can immediately just reject whatever this guy is saying. Because it won't happen in his lifetime. Josiah shall be born. He isn't born yet. And so... And there's no humility in him. This is a, a man in rebellion against God. He does not at all inclined to obey God. And when he hears this prophecy, shall be born, he goes, and I don't have to give any attention to this whatsoever. 
There are so many prophecies in Scripture. Every one of them has either been fulfilled, and it has been fulfilled literally, or it is yet to be fulfilled and will also be fulfilled literally. This is just one of many, and this one has nothing to do with Jesus. It's just one of those many, many prophecies in Scripture, and I can't say it emphatically enough. Every prophecy either is fulfilled literally or we are waiting for its literal fulfillment. There is not one failed prophecy in Scripture, and I don't know what the number of prophecies are. Some people put them in the hundreds. Even if you were to put them in the dozens, that makes the Bible, that alone makes the Bible absolutely unique to any other thing that has ever been written by man. And that is why we know this was not simply written by men. No man could come up with this. When Josiah fulfills this prophecy, he doesn't even know he's fulfilling it at the time. He doesn't have this at his disposal. He's not just reading it and saying, why don't we just go out and do this, and then we can claim fulfillment. It's not how it happened. I heard once that one of the major cults in the United States... I won't name which one, in the first 100 years of its existence had 100 failed prophecies. There is not one failed prophecy in Scripture. Not a one. This attests to the authorship of Scripture that it is God who is omniscient. And so he cries out against the altar, then he gives a sign, and he says, this same day the altar will be broken in half, and it spilled out its ashes. Well, Jeroboam didn't like that, and so he stretches out his hand, sees him, and he has a stroke. His arm freezes, becomes like a rock in midair. Well, that scared him. Meanwhile, behind him, the whole altar splits in half. Remember, massive structure splits in half. There are... He wasn't, the man of God was not seized. The king freezes, literally, and he asked the man of God to beseech God for him that his hand would be restored. And God in his grace, and remember, Scripture is always more about revealing God than it is human nature. And we see that in the midst of judgment, God is remembering mercy which he always does. No matter how severe the judgment is, he is also a merciful God in addition to being a righteous God. And as God is handing out judgment, he never stops being merciful. And here this man, who has just had the judgment of God pronounced on him, is also experiencing the mercy of God. And God restores his hand. Does it always happen that when authorities cry out, seize him, that they're protected? Don't we wish that would be the case? But it is not. We have 2,000 years of church history where authorities have cried out, seize those people. Seize the Christians. And they have not been spared. They've been fed to the lions. They've been fed to the wild beast. They've been torn apart, sawn asunder. Read Hebrews. Long list of things that even in the first century church, 
that Christians were suffering. And when the Caesars and the authorities were saying, seize them, they got seized. And they got put to death. I wonder if God would be worshipped for the right reasons. If every time a hostile authority said, seize them, it never happened. And Christians were always protected. Would we love God for the right reasons? I don't think so. So God in his wisdom does not always keep us from being seized. But in this instance, he does. He protects the young, unnamed prophet, the man of God, restores the king's arm to him. And the king says, come home with me. I want to reward you. And this unnamed prophet says, can't do it. Now, had he done it, can you imagine how it would have undermined the whole message of judgment? Because to go home with someone and eat with them is a statement of approval. And so if he's just said, God hates this false construct of a religion that you're hoping in. If he had just said that, that God is absolutely opposed to what you're doing, but I'll go home and have dinner with you. Mixed message would totally undermine what he had just said. And so he moves from, as one writer says, moved from saying, seize him, to trying to seduce him, to compromise him. If this man had any sensitivity toward God, he would not have said, pray for me. He would have prayed himself, God, forgive me. God, I am wrong. But you never hear that from the lips of Jeroboam. So the young unnamed prophet says, God has said to me, do not eat here, do not drink here, and go home by a different way. We don't know why God said that. One thought is, is that God wanted him to make, not even to encounter anyone twice. On the walk up there, undoubtedly, he would have talked to people, met people. And it's like God is saying, I want you to get so free of this place that you don't even talk to the same person twice and be tempted to start a friendship or relationship. Get out of here and leave by some way other than you came. And so he did. Now, verse 11. Now, an old prophet was living in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the deeds which the man of God had done that day in Bethel. An old prophet was living in Bethel. In Bethel. God didn't need to bring somebody up from Judah. He's got a prophet right there in Bethel. But he overlooks that man. He doesn't use that man. We're not told why. Well, this old prophet, he hears this and he goes, man, I'm an old man. And I've never heard anything like this ever happening. And he hadn't. The last time we see a miracle like this in the Bible, you really got to go back to the days of Moses and Joshua. This is rare, rare. And he goes, where did he go? Did you guys see? And the boys said, yeah, we saw what road he took and saddled my donkey. So they saddled the donkey and he rode out after him. He found the guy and he was taking a bad, a, the wrong siesta. Middle of the day, so I'm going to just stop and take a break. Big mistake. Old prophet finds him, comes up to him, says in verse 14, so he went after the man of God and he found him sitting under an oak and he said to him, are you the man of God that came from Judah? And he said, I am. And he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. 
And he said, I cannot return with you, nor go with you, nor will I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. For a command came to me by the word of the Lord, you shall eat no bread, nor drink water there. Do not return by the way which you came. And then the old prophet said to him, I also am a prophet like you. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to the house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. He lied. Can preachers lie? Yep. Can Christians lie? Yep. Are they still Christians? Yep. Prophets are not without sin. There is no such thing as a sinless person other than Jesus Christ. This young man should have known it was a lie. But he's old. And you're every, we used to at least be taught to respect your elders. I, can, I, I imagine if I were in this man's position, if as a young man I would have gone... Boy, guy's got gray hair. He's been walking with God all of his life. He's told me this. And my first inclination would have been, okay. Because you're taught to obey and respect your elders. Very much so in this kind of culture. And so he goes, all right. And he goes home with him. Verse 20, and it came about as they were sitting down at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God, and from Judah saying, thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the command of the Lord and have not observed the commandment which the, which the Lord your God commanded you, but you have returned and eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water, your body shall not come to the grave of your fathers. Wow. Would you like some dessert? <laughs> Talk about ruining your appetite. And it came about after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled the donkey for him. The least he could do, he just forfeited his life. And when he had gone, a lion met him on the way and killed him. And his body was thrown on the road with the donkey standing beside it. And the lion was standing beside the body. And behold, men passed by and they saw the body on the road and the lion standing beside the body. So they came and told it to the city where the old prophet lived. Now when the prophet who brought him back from the way heard it, he said, It is the man of God who disobeyed the command of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word of the Lord which spoke to him. Then he spoke to his son, saying, Saddle the donkey for me. So apparently he had two donkeys. And he went and found his body thrown on the road with the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body, nor torn the donkey. So the prophet took up the man of God and buried him in his own grave and told his boys, put me beside that man when you bury me. Very strange passage. Hard for us to, to accept what just happened here. That this man lied through his teeth as a prophet for self-gain. He just wanted to, he could have just gone home with the guy, but no, that was too inconvenient. How should this young man have known it was a lie? Quite simply, 
God never contradicts his word. Never. And when God said to this man, go home, do not eat here, do not stay here, he meant it. And the new message is a contradiction to the first message. Then it's false. He's, is, maybe he misunderstood the first message, really. Then why did the altar split in half? Why did God restore Jericho? See, God has already confirmed to this man that the first message he received was the right message. And now he's hearing a contradictory message. It has to be false. Has to, no matter who says it. Old people who have walked with God all their life can give bad, ungodly advice. So no, we should not just accept what old people say. Speaking as an old person. Everything should be checked against God's word. Sometimes people will, just out of love for us, they will say things that sound good and sound loving, but they are not true scripturally. You know, God, I just don't believe God wants you to suffer like that. Really? Maybe he does want you to suffer like that. Well, that's just too much for anybody to bear. I think that God gives you an out. Really? Where does it say that in God's word that I get an out? Just because I'm a Christian. What I see in God's word is that Christians suffer a lot. And this is part of the process of conforming us into the image of Christ and also displaying the sufferings of Christ to a lost world. Why should we be exempt from sufferings when Jesus was not exempt from them? He lied. And there is no excuse for this man believing it. But his sin's not greater than the prophet's sin. The old prophet gets off the hook. If anything happens, we're not told about it, and I think that's for a reason. God wants us to see how serious it is what this young man has done. If this young man gets away with his disobedience, then why would the nation of Israel listen to what the young man said? See, everything has just been thrown upside down. God has no choice here. But to discipline this man and to discipline him unto death because this man's actions undermine the word of God. Why would Jeroboam, why would the nation heed anything that this man said from God if he gets away himself with disobeying God? It's in 1 Peter that we're told that judgment begins with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Which is a more powerful testament to the righteousness and holiness and even the love of God? Letting Christians always slide no matter their disobedience or treating them like children of God, sons and daughters of God and saying, I will discipline you for your sin. We know that in the book of Acts, 
when God was in that early church, when it was growing rapidly, sometimes by thousands of people in one day, when God brought down discipline on Ananias and Sapphira, the unbelievers were going, whoa, this is serious stuff. This isn't just fun and games. This is not just exciting. There is a holy and righteous God. And it sobered them up. And it made them cautious that they not just treat the things of God as playthings. Today, I've, I know, we all know, we've made church all about just what is enticing to the unbeliever. What makes them want to come and stay. You don't see that in Acts. They were scared because they know God is a God who disciplines his people. Discipline begins with the house of God. I've made this point before, and I won't belabor it. You think maybe I will, even after I said I won't, but <laughs> I feel this is a passage, a, a very clear passage that substantiates a New Testament principle. And I, I'll, I've, it's, I've, it's been a, a good principle that I was taught in Bible college that I've kept with me and employed my whole life. And that is that every New Testament truth has an Old Testament illustration. And I think that's a great way of looking at the Old Testament. It causes you to let Scripture interpret Scripture. The New Testament truth that comes to mind as I read this story about this man being killed while the other man was let off the hook is from James, where it says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such you shall incur, what? A stricter judgment. Now, see, we have, and I've, I've said this before, so it's, you know, it's, I'm, I'm beating, you know, an old drum here. Um, we have this idea that all sin is the same. There is a sense in which that is true. All sin is sin. And all unrighteousness is sin. All sin is falling short of the glory of God. In James, the same book that says there is a stricter judgment, also says that if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become convicted as a transgressor of the law, the whole thing. That is not saying that the person who is innocent of adultery is guilty of adultery if he commits some other sin. It's just saying that it all stands together. It's saying that if you sin one time, you are a transgressor, and you fall short of the glory of God. And you are not righteous. No matter how self-righteous you may think that you are, you are not righteous in the eyes of a holy God. Whether we've sinned a lot or we've sinned infrequently, it's still falling short of the glory of God. It is still transgression. But there, do not think for a minute that all sin is the same. At the very end of the book of Revelation, where the great white throne is being described, in Revelation chapter 20, it says that he, the great white throne is set up where God is judging all the lost. 
And he says in verse 12 of chapter 20, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their, de according to their deeds. See, the first thing that's determined is, do these, are any of these masses of people standing in front of God, do any of them have eternal life? Do any of them, have they ever placed their faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life? And the answer, of course, is no, none of them. They wouldn't be standing there if they had eternal life. And so that's first determined. The book of life is open. None of these people's names are written in that book. They do not have eternal life. So now God, now see if this is, if all judgment is the same because all sin is the same, then why is God troubling himself to judge every single person according to his deeds? And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death gave up and death and Hades gave up their dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So what does that tell us? Every person who died without placing his faith in Jesus, sadly, is going to end up in the lake of fire. But it would not be fair. I don't like to use that word. It would not be just. It would not be just for a just God to punish every person exactly the same. Honestly, I believe this is one of the reasons that some people are so reluctant to place their faith in God because of the doctrine of hell, which often has been mistaught to say every person gets exactly the same, and we recoil at that rightly. Are you kidding me? You're telling me that some sweet little grandmother who never heard of Jesus but lived the most decent life that a human being can live apart from God, she will have the exact same judgment as Hitler? Why would I place my faith in a God like that? I'm with you. That is not the God of our Bible. Yes, every unbeliever will spend eternity separated from God in a place of conscious torment. But there is nothing in the Bible that indicates they will all have it exactly the same. How that works out, I don't know. All I know is the Bible says there is a stricter judgment. Jesus said to, to Pilate when he was standing before Pilate, just before his crucifixion, he says, the one who delivered me up to you has the stricter, has the greater sin. There are greater and lesser sins. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 that there are any sin can be forgiven, but the sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, Every other sin is outside the body, but sexual sin is in a different category. That is a sin against the body. doesn't say it's the worst of all sins, but he says it's a different sin. In 1 John chapter 5, John writes and he says, All unrighteousness is sin. But John also writes in the same verses there, and he says, there is a sin which is unto death. I do not say to pray for this, but there is a sin which is not unto death. You can pray about that one. And he's talking about sins that will get us killed even in this life. I don't know what those are. The point, I could keep going on, 
I said I wouldn't belabor it. The point is very, very simple. He is a holy, righteous, and just God. And what may seem minimal to you and I doesn't matter. What does it matter to God? What does God say about it? If you've grown up in a home where you had the privilege of hearing about Jesus Christ, if you're here today and have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been blessed to have heard concerning Jesus and to have heard the simple gospel message that God saves all who simply place their faith in Jesus and say, Jesus, save me. God saves. Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner and I fall short of your glory. And I recognize that the only hope of salvation I have is for you to save me. I know that I have no life. I am walking death. I do not possess God's life within me, eternal life, which I've been created to possess. Jesus, give me your life that I might live. And God says, you become a man of God, a woman of God, because you belong to him now. And if you've heard this, it's not the Hitler's who have the greatest judgment in the world. According to God's word, it's those who have heard and failed to respond. Jesus said concerning his own generation, I tell you the truth, Sodom and Gomorrah will have it better in judgment, less severe, he said, than this own generation. Because they heard, they saw, and they didn't believe. And he says, when the judgment comes, this generation, the generation of Jesus, will have it worse than any other generation that ever lived. There is a greater judgment. The message of Jeroboam's life is a message about one man in a nation that chose to set up a false construct. As sincere as they may have been, it was false and God hated it. It's a message of a two Believing men, two prophets, who both were disobedient to God, but one got a stricter judgment. But it's most of all a, a, a message concerning God. He is a holy God. He is a righteous God. He is a just God. And He is merciful. And in the midst of judgment, He is more than willing to remember mercy and to save to save. And all he's looking for is the heart that's inclined to him that will say, Jesus, save me. And he does. I'll close us in prayer. Lord God, I thank you so much for your goodness toward us. Your word says that every good thing comes from you. And we spend so much of our lives, God, accepting the good without giving acknowledgement to you. And there's no greater good that you've given us than the free gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that we would just cherish this gift, that we would recognize that in receiving Christ, believing in him for salvation, that we have been made men and women of God. 
And that, Lord, that every word that proceeds from our mouths would be your word speaking through us. And that we would truly be distinct from this world, confident and bold and humble in our walks before you. We know that you will not always protect us from harm when the enemy says seize. But we know that no one can separate us from the love of God. And that absent from this body is to be present with you. And that is our hope and our confidence. I pray, God, for any that have heard me today, whether here in this room or, or through the recording, and have not placed their faith in Christ, God, that you would encourage them with your love, that you want them in love you gave your son for them, that you're not looking for their best effort, for their commitment, for them to even turn from their sin, but you're looking for them simply to place their faith in Christ and receive the gift of eternal life and the gift of righteousness. Thank you, God, for your tender mercies toward us. In Jesus' name, amen.